One of the central teachings of the Buddha is that our suffering is caused by desire. This is something you've heard. So there's this confusion that comes up around this. And it comes up, and I hear the questions, usually take the shape of, well, so if the idea is that we're then supposed to eliminate desire, and we're working real hard to do that, then I don't know if that sounds like such fun. (laughs) You know, like, what's life going to be like if I get rid of desire? Isn't the meaning of life to care about things, to care deeply? So there's these real questions that people have about this kind of model of maybe what might be thought of as um, detachment or being aloof from or not a part of life. The Buddha didn't mean that. (laughs) I haven't talked directly to him, but I'm sure that wasn't what it was meant. Um, More that suffering is created by desire in the sense that we get attached to what we want, that we move through life wanting things to be a certain way and get attached, addicted, grasping around that. And in that way, we're not free. So the goal of practice can be considered as that we are really trying to come into wise relationship with our desires, that we're trying to find a way of being with this most natural expression of being alive that really frees us. T.S. Eliot puts it that we're really trying to learn to care and to not care. I like that one, to care and to not care. So that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, how we can come into wise relationship with desire, how we can care in a way that frees us. In our practice, as we sit here and through our lives, what happens for most of us is that we're beginning to discover the ways that we hold on. It becomes more and more obvious as we pay attention and sit quietly. Most of us are already very familiar with the overt ways that we're addicted or hold on. It's when we have to have things a certain way and are extremely uncomfortable and really suffering that they're not. Sometimes it takes the shape of behavioral addictions. And most people I know have one or more, you know, that we have to have a certain amount of or kind of food or drink or drug or activity in our life, and we get very, very um, in a state of, of angst if we're not. But then there's also the more subtle ways that we get caught in wanting mine, where there's this kind of chronic sense of how my life is, is not enough. That what will really make me happy is over there with that person at some other time. This is suffering because it means that we're not really resting in and enjoying and connecting with this moment. Thought I'd share a story of one of my uh, recent 
kind of struggles or dramas with wanting mind. And it happened at a retreat. And it's interesting, wanting mind at retreats is, is really very much blown out of the water. You can really see it because there's not much going on. There's not much to do. So what it gets focused on is always quite interesting. Like, when should I take a shower? That can become a whole drama in your mind, you know? In this case, I had, um, after lunch, the schedule at the retreats uh, mostly are that there's a free period. So I ate lunch and then went for a short walk to this very beautiful pond. Now, this pond was idyllic. The water was absolutely still, so the reflections were magnificent. And there were beautiful trees lining it. And it was just picture perfect. So I sat on this dock that was kind of out into the water and placed myself right in the middle and sat up straight and just kind of gazed at the wonders of the universe and was quite content for a few minutes. (laughs) Then what happened was I saw a a woman who was also sitting at the retreat who came up behind me and she started walking around the pond. And she was walking in a very mindful way. She looked like she was really enjoying it. And I started thinking, thinking, wow, I had a big lunch today. I should be walking. I should be walking off that lunch. I could be walking meditatively around this pond, enjoying the beauty of this pond, and really kind of getting energized for the rest of the sittings of the day. But here I am, I'm just sitting still. No. So all of a sudden, this fantastic experience of meditating at the pond became not enough. I, I thought I should be that woman walking around the perimeter of the pond. And I committed myself. The next day, that's what I was going to do. So I kind of sat out my sitting and walked back to the retreat center and did the rest of my day. The next day, I, just like she had, started mindfully padding around the perimeter of the pond But you couldn't get all the way around it. I didn't know that. So I kind of looped around even further and got totally lost and had about the most miserable, unpleasant. I was in brambles. I didn't have that many clothes on. I got scratched. I was sweaty. And it took me an extra hour to find my way back. Not enough, you know? How it is is not enough. We do this to ourselves, whether it's how this moment is right here, that I'm just not quite comfortable and there's a subtle shifting around to my work situation's not quite right, to the way my partner behaves isn't what I'm wanting. We get chronically discontent. You know, there's that whole thing about a lot of times we don't get what we want and then we get what we don't want. Here's a Jewish quote. A curse, you should have a lot of money, but you should be the only one in your family with it. (laughs) One writer says, it's like we're spending our life going fishing only to discover it wasn't fish we were after. We all want to be happy. And most of us in our minds have a story about how that's supposed to happen. And we get very hooked on the different projects that we're into that we think will bring us happiness. And what happens? The pleasures that we go after don't last. 
Never. Everything is changing. Not, none of our projects actually do it, and yet we're very addicted to them. We can see most clearly the way wanting mind happens, the way we get caught grasping when it comes to the people that matter the most to us, our closest circle. Then it becomes really clear. For those of you that are parents, you know what it's like that these children that you adore are also the source of your constant wanting to manipulate and change. In some way, we want them to be better and different and not do this and do more of that. The way they look, the way they act. We're always, in some way, trying to change things with our partners, with our friends. There's this constant sense of not really being able to rest in loving. Barbara Streisand writes, why does a woman work for 10 years to change a man's habits and then complain that he's not the man she married? So it's our natural conditioning. This isn't something that's strange about us humans. We want more pleasure. We want less pain. And we get hooked on how we go about making that happen. So this is the shadow side of caring. We care about our work. We care about the loves in our life. But the shadow side of that caring is that there's this chronic contraction of not good enough. A chronic contraction where the self gets identified in that we get small and obsessed and want it differently. So given that, what does it mean to be non-attached? What would it be like? In our meditation practice, and one of the main things that happens when we practice as we get quiet, is we begin to see exactly this moment how we're holding on. If we give ourselves the space to sit quietly, we'll find that there's all this movement of the mind to not be with what's here, to want something more and different, to try to create an experience to resist what's happening. So the starting place of moving towards that freedom of what T.S. Eliot calls the not care side of the equation is to see that happening. To really frame your practice that way, that you're waking up to how you're holding on, to recognize grasping. In a moment of mindfulness, of recognizing that you can see your thoughts going in one direction again and again. You know, I hope he does such and such, or what's going to happen tomorrow at work. In a moment of recognizing wanting mind, and you can note it that way, wanting mind, there's a bit of freedom. The whole nature of grasping is that our being takes the shape of what we want. We take the shape of wanting. So in the moment that we recognize it's going on, we become the awareness that's knowing that. Do you understand that? We step back and become bigger than wanting mine. I've described this in the past as being much like sensing waves on the ocean, that wanting is wave on the ocean. And with mindfulness, when we know that we're wanting, we become the ocean of awareness that includes it. We're not eliminating the desire, the wanting, 
but we include it and become larger than. This is the fundamental shift in identity that really brings us back to our true nature, to our Buddha nature. So in practice, wanting mind comes up. There's one friend of mine that described it, that whenever you sense suffering, ask yourself the question, what thought am I holding on to or believing in right now? Right this moment and make it very immediate. And usually it's a thought about how you possibly can fail or what you want and you might not get. Insufficiency and inadequacy and what can go wrong. What thought am I holding on to right now? So we sit together and close our eyes and begin to pay attention and then you'll sense sensations in the body that you want or don't want more of, right? That happens a lot. Wanting and not wanting are two sides of the same coin. We notice the thoughts going again and again, you know, the top 10 hits, right? To watch that, to notice that, to name it. This is the practice. And then after we name it, to go under the story. There's a tremendous power to being able to recognize wanting mind and then dropping in under the story to experience it as sensations in the body. What does it feel like to want? There's an exercise, and we can just do it for a moment. Reflect, as you will, on something that is very compelling to you, that you know you want a lot. And as you do, just make your hand into a fist. And let your mind make this wanting very big. Sense how much it matters. And as you do, let your fist get tighter and tighter. You can even hear the words, I want such and such. I want this person to love me or pay attention to me or I want happiness for my child or whatever it is to feel that. And as you do, feel your fist tightening. This is the contraction of wanting mind. It's not comfortable to want a lot. You can relax. Ah, let go. That's the, that's the key, you know, letting go. So wanting is a contraction of mind, and our practice is to wake up to it, to see it, to feel it in our body, to drop under the storyline and really experience what it's like. When we do that, there's more freedom to let go. There's more freedom to let be what is and not hold on so much. When we stop resisting what we don't want, when we stop grasping what we do, there's a tremendous surge of life energy that's freed up. It's been described as that we get to rejoin the flow of life. We're not so busy building a little barricade on the side of a river because we're afraid to be part of it. We just become the river. There are natural things that happen in our life to re-wake us up into what matters. 
for the most part, we're on these happiness projects where we think we want to experience a certain experience and that that's going to be what does it. And then we get these rude awakenings. Most of us know what that's like, where in some way that phone call will come that lets us know that somebody's gotten very sick or something will happen to our own bodies or a storm will happen and destroy a home or something. And all of a sudden the things that we've been holding on to that have been smaller we recognize is really not what mattered so much. I read you from uh, Carlos Castaneda, who writes, this is uh, the words of Don Juan, the shaman that Carlos Castaneda writes about. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you, and it always will, until the day it taps you on your left shoulder. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you just catch a glimpse of it, or even the feeling that your companion is there watching you. when we're caught in wanting mind, when we're caught in the smaller projects of our life, this is a powerful way of reawakening that most spiritual traditions encourage in us to let our mortality, to let the very incredibly fast-changing pace of experience remind us that it's going fast. We don't have that long. And to wake up to what really matters. A moment of waking up to what really matters is a letting go. It's a relaxing back into becoming the ocean of experience. Now there's something I wanted to read to you that I can't. You know, the words letting go themselves are an incredibly good mantra. Even right this moment, sense what you might be holding on to. It might be simply tension in your body, the muscles tight. There's such a habit to contract again and again through our body. It might be a state of mind or a background thought. And even in the moment, just to say, let go, let go, so freeing. So one side of the equation, this non-attachment, this recognizing where we're holding, and moment after moment letting go to open to a more full, whole sense of being is our practice. There's a shadow to that, though. There's a misunderstanding that can come that I mentioned earlier, which can be, instead of non-attachment, a kind of detachment. Do you know, an aloofness, a stepping back from life, an avoidance? So that in service of not getting tripped up and snagged by wanting mine, there can be a tendency to be overly carefully distant from life. 
a pulling away. We all know what this can be like in the sense that if we're not attached, you can really see clearly what's true. If you're not attached and you're not disturbing what's there, and the best example is another person close to you, if you're not judging them, it's much easier to see who they are, what they need, what they love. So non-attachment gives us wisdom, but if it's a pulling away, if there's not care there, then we can't understand. Each one of us knows what it's like when we really feel understood by somebody, we know they care. It takes caring to pay attention. Someone wouldn't be paying attention to us with a real clear presence if they didn't care. So you cannot separate out caring from presence. In order to really be present, we need to care. So this detachment is, in a way, a pushing under of the caring quality that needs to be part of our practice. That's why so many times you'll find in here, we will link metta, the loving-kindness meditation, with vipassana, with mindfulness, because it's the presence of heart that really allows us to be free. It's our nature to care, to love. And I think all the classic tragedies that have ever been written and performed have to do with this nature of wanting to love in some way being thwarted or resisted. I know in my private therapy practice, when I work with clients, with couples, one of the most sad kind of experiences that comes up is when both people report how much they feel they have this capacity to love each other, to love the other, but they feel shut down. That they have all this love in them, but it, there's nowhere to put it, because in some way the other person threatens them or won't receive it right or whatever. Most of us know that one, this sense of really wanting to love, to be free to love, and yet in some way not allowing ourselves or feeling able to. You all know that Mary Oliver poem. I, I quoted a lot, that one line that says, to let that soft animal of your body love what it loves. It's really what we want, isn't it? to be free to love. This practice of mindfulness is a practice of paying attention with love, loving life. If the love's not there, it's a very clinical, dry experience. It's not waking up. So we resist it for some reason in our lives. We don't let ourselves fall in love as deeply as we're capable of with each other. We don't let ourselves love ourselves, you know. Love what's around us. And the truth is that we're very afraid to. We're afraid to fall in love. We're afraid if we fall in love, we'll hit something. We'll hit rejection. We'll hit abandonment. If we really let go in love, we'll lose what we're in love with. 
There's a fear that we'll drown in an ocean of sorrow if we really let our hearts open. The truth is that we can't hold on to anything we love, right? That everything we love, our own bodies, our own minds, the other beings in our lives, the trees in our yards, everything is changing and everything will die, everything will be lost. So how in the face of that do we go ahead and say yes anyway? Joanna Macy writes that it's only when our heart breaks open that we can hold the whole universe. Now the word courage means greatness of heart and it takes tremendous courage to love because loving is letting our hearts break open. What breaks open and what we have to let go of is any holding in that love, anything we're holding on to, to love and yet not grasp. This is a poem by Thomas Carlyle that has to do with the courage to love. It is good to use best china, the most genuine goblets, the oldest lace tablecloth. There's a risk, of course, any time we use anything, or anyone shares an intimate moment, or a fragile cup of revelation, but not to touch not to handle the artifacts of being human, is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe, where nothing is enjoyed, are broken, are spilled, are spoken, are stained, are mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is ever lost, are found. In a way, suffering can be considered as our resistance to loving. And when we do that, when we resist, when we don't have that courage to really let ourselves live it fully, there's all sorts of dis-ease that happens. We know it in ourselves. First of all, we get tired. It takes a lot of work to resist, to fight life. We can get numb, depressed, sad. Those are some of the symptoms. And then we find that we just keep ourselves busy fishing again, thinking that we're moving towards happiness and really never learning to let go and love right what's here and now in our lives. So this practice, in a sense, is training to let ourselves love. Every time we sit down, Every time we're willing to sit still, it's really the courage of our own being to be with the life of this moment. It's it's a blessing that we offer to ourselves that we're saying, yes, I'm willing to be here this moment with this life. It's a practice because it's our habit not to. Do you notice how hard it is sometimes to slow down, to sit still? It's not our habit to let ourselves be with and love with and experience and listen to the moment. That's not our habit. 
So in a way, we're just changing or breaking habits by this practice. And it's not just a practice of coming here and sitting. It's a practice of really slowing down and bringing presence to the beings and places of our life. Be here now. Being here is really falling in love with the place that we're in. It's really recognizing and sensing the earth around us, what Terry Tempest Williams describes, an erotics of place. Terry Tempest Williams is a wonderful writer, poet, essayist, environmentalist, ecologist, very beautiful woman. Erotics of place, loving the life of where we are. You know, every great culture had its own ways of honoring the place that the people lived with really sensing sacredness, the sacredness of the rivers in India or the mountains in different places. She describes the Maasai's as having this beautiful way of honoring grass because what's in the Serengeti Plains but grass, right? One Maasai elder writes or speaks that grasses are trustworthy. When a boy is beaten for an inappropriate act, the boy falls to the ground and clutches a handful of grass. His elder takes this gesture as a sign of humility. The child remembers where the source of his power lies. It's who we are. We come from this and out of this earth to worship the place that we live in, an erotics of place. Much can get drawn from the myth of Echo and Pan, and I'd like to share with you a little of this myth because it's so, such a beautiful expression of letting ourselves love more fully. Echoes are real, not imaginary. We call out and the land calls back. It is our interaction with the echo system, the echo system. We understand it intellectually. We respond to it emotionally, joyously. When was the last time we played with echo? The Greek god Pan played with her all the time. Echo was a nymph and she was beautiful. Long, dark hair flowing over her bare shoulders, lavender eyes, burnished skin, and red lips. Pan was intrigued. He was god of wild nature, rustic, lustful, and seductive. But with his goat legs and horns, he could not woo Echo. She remained aloof, indifferent to his advances. Pan was not accustomed to loving nymphs in vain. He struck her dumb, save for the power of repetition. Echo roamed the woods and pastures, repeating what she heard. The shepherds became incensed and seized her. They tore her body to pieces. Gaia, the Earth Mother, quickly picked up the pieces of Echo, quietly picked up the pieces of Echo, and hid them in herself, where they still retain their repetitive powers. Pan, seeking no further revenge, strengthened his vows to love the land in all its wildness, dancing in the woods and the fields and grottoes on mountaintops and glens. Then Terry Tempest William goes on to say, but now we think Pan is dead. Elizabeth Barnett Browning has said, 
earth outgrows the mythic fancies sung beside her in her youth. Pan, Pan is dead. When James Watt was asked what he feared most about environmentalists, his response was simple. He said, I fear that they are pagans. So in a way, environmentalists kind of can express in a way this, this dimension of being a lover of place, worshiping what is sacred. In yesterday's Washington Post, a Republican congresswoman from the West denounced environmentalism as an unconstitutional effort to, re to establish a state religion. This religion, a cloudy mixture of New Age mysticism, Native American folklore, and primitive earth worship, pantheism, is being promoted and enforced by the Clinton administration in violation of our rights and freedoms. <laughs> Representative Helen Chenoweth from Idaho. Maybe she just got really cold. Yeah, money. So, so there we go. That greed, fear, grasping separates us from our love of place. This is the uh, continuation again of Terry Tempest Williams. It is time for us to take off our masks, to step out from behind our personas, whatever they might be, and admit we are lovers, engaged in an erotics of place loving the land, honoring its mysteries, acknowledging, embracing the spirit of place. There is nothing more legitimate and there is nothing more true. And that's why we are here. It is why we do what we do. We love the land. It is a primal affair. Pagans, perhaps, involved in an erotics of place, most definitely. So Eros, our love of the here and now, our love of place, of what's here, and our love of who's here. Eros, really allowing ourselves to be intimately connected with the beings of our life. So many of us are waiting in some way, perhaps for a different partner or different friends or for those that we have now to change so that we can love fully. We're waiting. You might know that um, inquiry Stephen Levine gives and says, if you know that you're going to die in a few days, who would you call? And what would you say? And why are you waiting? What are we waiting for? It's our nature to want to love. Even those of us that are most wounded really want more connection. And just like grass kind of growing through concrete, you know, just in the face of the biggest obstacles, our beings keep moving towards it. It's, it's an irresistible force of the universe. This is written by Eduardo Galeano. The Uruguayan political prisoners may not talk without permission or whistle, smile, sing, walk fast, or greet other prisoners. The arrows of being alive. 
They may not make and receive drawings of pregnant women, couples, butterflies, stars, or birds. One Sunday, Didaco Perez, school teacher, tortured and jailed for having ideological ideas, is visited by his daughter, Malay, age five. She brings him a drawing of birds. The guards destroy it at the entrance of the jail. On the following Sunday, Malay brings him a drawing of trees. Trees are not forbidden and the drawing gets through. Didaco praises her work and asks about the colored circles scattered in the treetops, many small circles half hidden among the branches. Are they oranges? What fruit is it? The child puts her finger to her mouth, and she whispers in his ear, silly, don't you see their eyes? They're the eyes of the birds that I've smuggled in for you. <laughs> We can't stop it, you know. We'll keep on trying in some way, awkward or not, to reach out and connect. But we're afraid. So sometimes it's our practice that begins to open it, that we start getting more at ease with being with what's there, with letting love happen. Gradually, we sit day after day and we start learning how to open our hearts to our own experience. That's compassion. The word compassion means to be with and to be with others in that way. More and more, what seems to draw people to practice is that sense of, we don't have that long and I want to live it fully. This is a poem by Mary Oliver, and it's called, When Death Comes. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility, and I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited the world. So much of our poetry, our art, our dreams 
are really the, what the Buddha described as expressions of the sure heart's release, this, this desire to really let go and live it, to feel it fully. Rumi puts it this way, I would love to kiss you. The price of kissing is your life. Now my loving is running towards my life, shouting, what a bargain, let's buy it. Here's our paradox that we're in, and I've said it already. Our nature is to love. Our nature is, as a flower growing towards light, to really live it every moment. And our conditioning is fear. Our conditioning is to pull back, to ward off, to get busy, to get preoccupied. So here we are, we have this nature where we want to love, we want to be open, and yet we keep grasping. It's so hard to love without attachment. Jung writes about this, about Eros, in this way. He says, Eros belongs on one hand to our original animal nature, which will exist as long as we have a body. But on the other hand, it is connected to the highest forms of the spirit. It blooms only when spirit and instinct are in true harmony. If one or the other aspect are missing, then an injury occurs. It easily slips into the pathological. Too much of the animal, the grasping, disfigures the civilized human being. And too much civilization and culture makes for a sick animal. So much of this getting to know ourselves is to sense where we lean. Are we lost in grasping? Are we lost in being the kind of out of control animal that's not connected to the space and the vision of mindfulness? Are we caught in aversion where we're being too civilized and not allowing ourselves to touch what's alive, what's vibrant, what's real. To know how we lean, to discover where we are in that. If your head tells you one thing and your heart tells you another, before you do anything, writes this one person, you should first decide whether you have a better head or a better heart. Now that's one approach. But the way of mindfulness and heartfulness is to trust that both are essential in our being, that both this practice of seeing clearly what's here, mindfulness, knowing what's here, not being lost in our wanting, being the ocean of awareness, is essential for understanding. And to love what we see, is essential to be a fully whole and awakened being. It's not which is better. They both are totally interdependent, tied together. Consider two wings of the bird that are needed to fly, the wing of understanding, the wing of love or compassion. I'll end with William Blake who writes, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. 
So let's just take a few moments to sit in silence and just be with the life of this moment with care and with presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.